Amen. Good morning. It is great to see all of you. If you are new to us, my name is Matt. I am the ministry operations pastor here. Tom Hendricks is our senior pastor and normally our regular communicator. And he was supposed to be in Israel for this week and next, but he's sitting right there. So if you're not new to us, maybe you were looking over there at the beginning of the service like you always do and you know it, and you were going, oh man, Tom is here, Matt, Will, our young aspiring middle school ministry director, is Will going to get his first shot today? What's going on here? Well, it's me. So normally I handle the intro and the outro, the beginning, um, welcome and prayer of confession, and then I handle the, the charge at the end, but today I'm going to handle the filler, and um, I'm going to take care of Tom's message for him. And uh, now I got a bigger laugh than that last night when I said that. So anyway, I guess this is not a good sign. But anyway, uh, my name is Matt and I'm actually thrilled to be here. And today we continue in our series uh, in our study of the letter uh, of Paul's, the second letter to the church in Corinth. So if you have no idea what, who Paul is or what the church in Corinth is, the Apostle Paul was one of the founding fathers of the Christian uh, early church. And uh, he, wrote, he planted churches all over uh, the Holy Land area all over uh, Greece and Italy and all these places. And he, uh, one of these churches was in a place called Corinth. And we have recorded in the Bible letters that he wrote to that church. And the second letter, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, the second Corinthians is what we call it, is what we've been studying. And last week, uh, Paul was talking about generosity. He was saying the gospel inspires generosity. The gospel, the good news that God is redeeming the world through the power and work of Jesus. He said that inspires generosity. But this week he continues in that conversation. And uh, he says that, you know, it's not just about generosity. It's not just about how much money you, you produce or time or talent that you produce uh, out of duty. He says, no, no, there's, there is a quality to it. There's a quality to that gift there's a place from which that gift should come if it is inspired by the gospel. God loves a cheerful giver, he says. You know the most cheerful gift I ever got, the most, the most incredibly kind act of generosity I ever received, the biggest gift in terms of cheerful giving I ever got, you know what it was? It was a mango. When I was 15 years old, uh, my first mission trip I ever went on, I went to the Dominican Republic, and we were in a little town called Zafaraya, out in the country, and we built a church there, a little 20 by 40 building. Uh, we were there for two weeks, and uh, what happens on these trips, if you've been, as you know, there's lots of little kids around, and you start bonding with some of the kids, and, and on this particular trip, my very first one, a little boy and I kind of hit it off, and he would hang around with me, and he'd literally stand by me and just sort of, of hang out with me every day while I was working on this building and laying block, and he'd be sitting there handing me things and all that, and I didn't speak Spanish, and he didn't speak English, but we just sort of connected, and what I realized about this little boy is that Something happened in him, and I really didn't understand it, but he began to admire me and look up to me in a way that I had never experienced, and I didn't really even understand why he did. But this little boy grew to love me. He wanted to wear my sunglasses and wear my bandana. He wanted to act like me and talk like me and look like me. And just in these two weeks, this happened. And on the very last day of the trip, we commissioned our church, did a little service for the church, and the little boy was there. I remembered his name last night. His name was Gabriel. He's a little bitty. And this little boy, grimy, snot-faced, matty-haired, grubby little boy, skinny as a rail, 
reached up to me and handed me a mango with a tear streaming down his face. Now, I had watched this little boy and the other kids. I'd watched what they ate and what they didn't eat. I'd watched them fight over things like a mango. And he gave that to me. It was the most generous thing I've ever received. And I've received a lot of generosity. People have been very kind to me and my family during hard times. People in this church have been very gracious and thoughtful to us. Never, ever have I received a gift of cheerful generosity like I received from Gabriel that day. And you know, when he handed me that mango, I could have gone home the next day and bought a thousand mangoes. I had exponentially more than that little boy would ever have in every sense of the word, except perhaps cheerful generosity. And you know, when he handed me that mango, he didn't ask me what I was going to do with it. He didn't wonder if I was going to share it. He didn't wonder how I was going to divide it up or what I was going to make with it. He didn't follow me around to make sure that I used it wisely. He just handed it to me. Because it wasn't about what I was going to do with it. It was because he loved me. So he gave from that place. And that is what the Apostle Paul says a cheerful giver is. I love passages like this one because it literally says the words, here's the point. Rare in Scripture, do you read a passage and it says, here's the point. And it literally says, here's the point. I also love the fact that when God tells stories like this one, He just pulls the curtain back and He lets us just see people for who they are. He lets us see people for all of their insecurities, all their sins, all their greed, all their malice, all these things. Here you have the Apostle Paul, okay? The author of two-thirds of the New Testament. Planted 15 or 16 churches on his own, responsible for spreading the gospel to the entire world. And this guy, the Apostle Paul, is being accused by people who don't know him of holding money for himself, holding power for himself, all of these nitpicky little, little gossipy things. This guy is having to defend himself for those things. And here he finds himself in the middle of a capital stewardship campaign. That's exactly what this is. They've been raising money to minister to the poor. Okay, So they've been raising it on all the churches. They've been raising it in the region of Macedonia. They've been raising it in the region of Achaia, which is where Corinth is. Corinth is a wealthy church. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of resources. They're a port city. Again, very much like Fort Lauderdale. A lot of culture, a lot of life, a lot of sophistication, a lot of education, a lot of money. Macedonia, the church in Macedonia, very poor area, very poor church. And last week, when he said that gospel inspires generosity, he pointed to that church in Macedonia, and he said, see these poor people, they gave from their poverty great wealth. And then he even holds up Jesus Christ himself, our Savior, our model for generosity. And he says, Jesus himself, your God, your Savior, though he was rich, he became poor. Why? So that you might become rich. And he holds up that example. And you think, that's where it ends. He's made his point. Give more. Empty your pockets. That's what it's about. It's about how much you give. But he doesn't stop there. And that's why I love it. Because If it was all about raising money, that's where he would have stopped. The next thing he goes on to say is a strategic mistake 
if it's all about the money. And yet he goes on. So let's see what he says. Last week, he basically says, the gospel makes you generous. This week, he says, now, it is superfluous. I'm going to say that's the only place in the Bible that uses the word superfluous. Now, it is superfluous to me, for me, to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that, you're, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised so that it may be a ready, and, uh, ready as a here it comes, willing gift and not as an exaction. What's going on here? Paul is saying, you're ready. It's really interesting. He's saying, you're ready. You have everything you need. You have the motivation of the gospel that has saved you for eternity. You have all the resources that you need. You've made a commitment. You're ready. So be ready. And in fact, I'm going to send someone ahead for accountability and to help you collect the offering so that when we do come, it's an offering given from the right place. Why did he do that? Why did he bother to do that? Because he knows that life is complicated and he knows that money makes us funny. He knows that when it comes to our money, we do that. I don't know if you remember, several uh, years ago, Tom, we did a series uh, called Leverage Your Life, and Tom gave this great analogy uh, of a bag. He said, imagine yourself, and there's a big bag, and you take all your stuff, all your resources, time, talent, treasure, and you put it in the bag, and then you get in the bag with it, and then you tie the bag up, and you, you hop over, and you give yourself to the Lord. You give your whole self to the Lord. Well, everybody resonated with that, and it makes a ton of sense that that's what God calls us to do, to leverage our life for the kingdom. But let me tell you what happens next. What happens next is that God then takes the bag, and he dumps it into this big box of mission and renewal, and then he pours everything in there, including you, and you get in the box, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, when you look back in, your sin is gone. There's no sin in there because Christ has covered the sin. All that's left is who he's made you to be for his purposes. And you know what most of us do, if not all of us? We start looking for our wallet. Yeah, 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 but I'm going to put that in my pocket. I mean, I'm in the box, but I'm going to put this back in my pocket. Well, Paul knows that, and so that's why he challenges him. That's why he says, you are ready, you have what you need, so be ready. Why is that? Because there's something qualitative about generosity for a Christian. Paul is saying there's something that matters about the way you give your gift. There's something that speaks just as loudly, if not more, than the amount itself. You know, if I won the lottery, if I won the billion dollar lottery and gave a million dollars to this church, they'd put a plaque on the wall. That little boy will never get a plaque for that mango. But that little boy was by far more generous than I would be. And it would come from a much more sincere place, would it not? Paul says it matters 
that you give not just generously but cheerfully, the enthusiasm says something just as important as the gift itself. And then he utters these famous words. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You reap what you sow. We all understand that. We know what he means. If you sow wheat, you're going to get wheat. If you sow weeds, you're going to get weeds. If you sow nothing, you're going to get nothing. We all understand that. First, before I talk about what Paul means to us as Christians by that, I want to talk about what he doesn't mean. Because these are some reasons that a lot of people are very cynical about money, especially when it comes to church. First thing is this, personal misuse. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if I do good things for people, God will do good things for me. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that if I donate money and if I do nice things for other people, then God will make me flourish. He will bless me. That is not what it means. Because if that were the case, then God would not be your king and he would not be your savior. He would be your vendor. This would be a business transaction every time you gave. So it doesn't mean that. Another thing it doesn't mean, this is an abuse of, of some churches. This is an abuse of some pastors. If you give God $100, He'll give you 1000 Well, we call that prosperity gospel, and that's still about you. That's still about you. It's not cheerful giving. So, what does Paul mean? Well, when Paul says you reap what you sow, he assumes something. He assumes that these followers know that it's not about them. He makes that assumption that they know it's not about them. We, listen, we all give cheerfully, okay? We flow resources to things that are most important to us. If, I can flow resources cheerfully to crack if I'm a crack addict. Every one of us has something in our lives to which we flow resources cheerfully and joyfully. At the expense of everything else if we have to. We're all cheerful givers to something. The question is what? We flow those resources where we want and we do it liberally. It's as natural as breathing. And Paul is assuming that those in right relationship to Christ will want to reap what Christ wants to reap. In Christ, our most fundamental desires and motivations change. And we want to reap not what we want to reap, but what He wants to reap. Better stated, it's not that we don't get what we want, it's that we change what we want. What we want in us changes and it becomes the same as the one who, as though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. And therefore, those of us who have become poor in Christ seek to do the same thing. We are willing to become poor in this life that others might become rich. And to pour all of our resources into those efforts. And so what do our desires become? He says it right here. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that... So that, don't stop there. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Well, where is it, Lord? So that is the whole ballgame. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in what? Stuff. 
money, power, fame, prestige, security. No, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, why does Paul stop there and quote a psalm? That's what that is. That's from a psalm. And he's not talking about the Lord. He's talking about a person. And he quotes Psalm 112. Maybe you saw that in your personal worship. Why does he do that? Here's why. Because Paul attaches every good work to this idea of righteousness. Righteousness. Now, when we read righteousness in the Scriptures, or when we hear that word used in public, we don't, uh, we don't typically think of it um, like this, relating to good works. What we think of righteousness as is what you don't do. Holiness, moral purity, all these kinds of things. We think, I'm a righteous person because I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't hang out with the people who do. That makes me righteous. Well, that's not the biblical understanding of righteousness. Let me tell you what it is. The biblical understanding of righteousness is when you are willing to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of another. Righteousness is when you are willing. Let it ring in your ear. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich. The willingness to take all of your glory, all of your safety, all of your security, all of your power, all of your wealth, all of your prosperity, and empty it into another. That's what it means to be righteous. So the reason Paul quotes Psalm 112 is because it describes the heart of a cheerful giver. That's why I quote Psalm 112. You should go home and read it, but let me just give you a couple highlights. The first thing that he says in Psalm 112, he says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, holds him in reverence, holds him in awe, puts him in the right place, puts, puts God up here and me down there, not the other way around. It's the common human sin, wanting to be God for myself. So I fear the Lord. No, I put Him in right reverence. And who greatly delights in His commandments. Did you hear that word, delights? It doesn't say who greatly obeys His commandments. It doesn't say who faithfully and ruthlessly follows everything He tells Him to do. It doesn't say that. It says that His commandments make Him happy. He delights in them. He savors them. He follows them because he sees their wisdom. He's proud when he follows them like a son is proud when he pleases his father. And even more so when he reflects his father's character. Any of you got mommy and daddy issues? Any of you struggle with wanting to please your parents, your mom or your dad? Maybe you're 50, 60 years old and you still worry about what your mom or dad thinks of you. You were wired to delight in the character of your father. And our fathers are broken. We're human beings. We're sinful. So we mess that up. But God does not. And so I delight in the commands of God. So what does it say that will result in if I'm a righteous man? Now you tell me if these are not on your list of goals for your life. Let me tell you, you tell me if these are not on your list. Here's one. His children will be people of influence and authority. He'll have noble children. Here's another one. He will be financially prosperous. His house will be filled with riches and wealth. Here's one. I love this one. He won't be afraid of bad news. How about that? How would you like to, to not have to worry about things? How do you have things in your life? 
that you worry about? Do you worry about what's going to happen at work? What's going to happen to your business? Is that deal going to go through or not? Because if not, I can't pay the mortgage and I don't want to tell my family because they'll be just devastated. Do you have issues in relationships that you worry about, you're afraid of? Do you fear death? Do you have an illness? You're waiting for the test results. You notice that it doesn't say he doesn't get bad news. It says he doesn't fear bad news, this righteous man. Would you like that? Would you like to have noble children, financial prosperity, not fear bad news? And then it says this, because he is gracious and merciful and deals generously and justly, he will be remembered. Why will he be remembered? Because he's invested in endurable things. Through his righteousness, his willful desire to disadvantage himself for another, he's made the world a more beautiful place that lives beyond him. The Rimal wing, there's somebody named Rimal. Every time we go back there to put our children in there, Rimal is remembered because she disadvantaged herself so that others might be advantaged. The Skolton building over here, we're going to put a plaque back on the wall for that thing. The Skolton building, named for a missionary family, the father was killed in the Congo. Martyred because he disadvantaged himself for the advantages of others. And so does his wife. She continued their work in the Congo. We'll remember them. Because they invested in durable things, which is what we're called to do. And it's, only, it's the only thing that makes sense. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Peter says this, but in keeping with Jesus' promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where what dwells? Wealth, prosperity, obedience. Righteousness dwells. That's why we remember a righteous person. Paul continues, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your what? Of your righteousness. And just as an aside, what does it say about the unrighteous? In Psalm 112, it says, the unrighteous, the ungenerous, the psalmist concludes, their desires will melt away. They will come to nothing. I was talking to a real estate attorney friend of mine and she was telling me that she's working with this very sad couple up north who has millions of dollars of wealth and they're both in their 90s and they're dying and they can't even leave their home. But they're holding on to everything as tight as they can. In their will, an investment in good and righteous things, an investment in others, $1,000. They will die. And all of those things in their home and all those things that they've accumulated that meant something to them will turn to dust and they will be forgotten. Because those things are temporary. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs, it's not only feeding people and ministering to people of, uh, of the saints, but is also overflowing and many thanksgivings to whom? To God. 
You see, this is where the cheerful part comes in. This is why the cheerfulness of the gift is as important and powerful a ministry as the dollar amount itself. Because the cheerfulness is what speaks to your core beliefs, to what really matters to you. And if you're giving out of duty, well, then that's who your God is, the God who demands things from you, or He will punish you, or He will shame you, or He will resent you. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your, here it comes, submission that comes from where? From your confession of the gospel. Your submission with all things, including your wealth, is a part of your confession that you really believe this stuff. It is a validation of the authenticity of your belief. and the generosity of your contribution for them and, all, and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. So Paul is saying yes to the Christian. Of course you should be generous, but you should be cheerful about it. Why? Because you believe in something bigger than you. Something that's wonderful and that will last forever. And you can give not only generously and cheerfully, but cheerfully as well because you believe the gospel. You believe the good news that through the work and power of Christ, God is renewing all of His creation because you know that God has done that for you. So right here I want to stop for a second because this is really important. What is God doing here? It is so easy to end with duty when it comes to this money thing. Obedience. Yeah, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, I should be obedient. Yeah, it is hard, but I'm going to do it. It's so easy to stop there, but I want to stop for a second, and I want to remind you what the gospel is, okay? Here's the deal. If you've received Christ, you're free. If you've received Christ, you're free. You can do whatever you want with your money. Truly. If you've received Christ, you have access to eternal peace. Do you understand that that's what God is about? And that's why He wants you to not just give, but give generously? He's not about your obedience. It doesn't end there. He's not done and happy when you become obedient. He's not happy until you have peace. And you cannot have peace. You cannot have a just peace. You cannot have a perfect peace a shalom, the way things ought to be, until you've been restored to right position with the God who made you. And right relationship. And that's why He cares about your money, because your money is a part of you. It speaks a lot to your core beliefs. And He wants it in right relationship to Him and His purposes, so that you will have true peace about your money. That's what's going on here. St. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. So as freed people, 
seeking to find our rest in God and Him alone because He is the only one who can truly give it. Let's apply this. Last week, Tom talked about two types of giving, what I'll call worship giving and missional giving. Okay, worship giving is the mango. Worship giving is from a place in the heart. It's pure gratitude to the Lord. It's a return to Him of a portion of that which He's given to you, acknowledging that it's all His. It's putting your money in right relationship to God. We talk about the tithe, and that goes off on a million different conversations. Whenever we mention the word tithe, we get emails and everything else. There are people who believe that the tithe, tithe means 10%, by the way, okay, one-tenth. And, and we, we, when we think of the tithe, we think of Israel, the, the ancient nation of Israel, okay, the, the nation that became what we know today as, as the Jews and as the nation of Israel. This people had a, a law that commanded them to tithe the top, the first fruits of whatever they had. Now, they were agrarian, so that might be the first 10% of their grain or their livestock or whatever it was, but they were to tithe all that they had. But here's the deal. That was a worship act. There was another thing called a love offering or a free will offering. That was a different deal. That's what Paul is talking to them about in, uh, in Corinthians. But let me tell you about that tithe, okay? That tithe pre-existed the nation of Israel, man named Abraham. Actually, his original name was Abram, which means father. He was the father of the Jews. He was the one that God called to become the father of a great nation that became the Jews. Well, Abram met a king of Salem before Israel ever existed, a man named Melchizedek that the Bible says was the high priest of the living God. By the way, his name meant shalom. It meant righteousness. Well, he met this king of Salem, and what did he give him? He gave him 10% of what he had as an act of worship to God. In Scripture, in the, when, when, the, when Israel came along and they were received these laws about the tithe, they, the tithe was used for different things, okay? Uh, they used it to support the priesthood because the priests didn't have inheritance. They didn't have land. They didn't have farms because they had to run their worship and all of those types of ceremonial things. So the priests were ministered to by the tithe. They used it for the poor. That's why God rebukes Israel in, Isaiah, or in Malachi. Malachi 3 he says, my storehouse is empty. You can't care for the poor. And you know that I'm all about the poor. But here's another really interesting thing that I bet you never knew they did with the tithe. In Deuteronomy 14, after they've gone in and they've taken the Holy Land and they've retaken stuff that, that belonged to them in the Holy Land, God says, wipe out all these pagan gods, get rid of all these pagan rituals, quit, quit worshiping idols and worship me, the, the one true God. Worship me in truth, in spirit and in truth. Come and worship me and bring your tithe into the city and throw a party with it. Bring your tithe to me and have a celebration. Eat your 10% of your grain. Eat, drink the 10% tithe of your wine that you've brought. Throw a party. Because why? Because these were acts of worship. And if you're wondering about the New Testament, well, but what did it end in the New Testament? All right, well, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for something. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, that means you tithe really expensive stuff, and neglect justice and the love of God. Here it comes. He commends them for tithing, but he says you neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the tithe predates and postdates Old Testament Israel. But let me tell you, even if you want to land on the side, and there are plenty of great Christians who, who believe that the tithe as a law is an Old Testament thing. But here's the deal. Somewhere you've got to tell me how you do the mango. If, if, if you don't believe it's the tithe, then all I ask is, 
When does the mango happen in your life? When do you, in your scrawny little grimy self, hand to the God who doesn't need it something that means something valuable to you simply because you love Him? How, when, where do you do that? Because the average American evangelical Christian gives 2% of their entire income to any charity whatsoever. About $1,189 on average a year. So where's your mango? The second one, missional giving. I put my money to right use for the Lord. So worship giving is putting my money in right relationship. Missional giving is putting my money in right use. Free will offerings. There's this great story in 1 Chronicles 29 where David is having a big fundraising campaign to build the temple. That's what he's doing. Well, what does he do, the king of Israel? He gets up and he lists everything he's going to give. I'll give the gold where they need gold. I'll give the silver where they need silver and a lot more than that. Fabulous wealth that he commits to this thing. Then all of the leaders get up and they all pledge their gifts and then they encourage the, the, the whole of Israel to get up and give their gifts. And then he does this beautiful prayer and here's what he says at the end of it and I think this is the spirit of all of the giving. He says this. Who am I and what is my people that we should even be able to offer this willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. That's the spirit of a cheerful giver. So, in my own personal worship, and my own be honest with myself, I came up with a few things that I'll close with. With regard to my giving, okay? Here are things that God does not want from me. Motivated by guilt or shame. I owe it to God. I owe it to the poor. I owe it to the crying baby on the TV. Motivated by fear, God will punish me. Or even worse, God will be disappointed with me. Only about mission. This is to all of you type A people like me. There are things to be done and they cost money. That is true. That's missional giving. But let me tell you something. There's the mango and it means something to your soul to be able to give the mango. Remember Mary when she poured the valuable perfume on Jesus' feet and she cried and with her tears mixed with the perfume she wiped his feet with her hair. She was rebuked by a type A missional person for wasting it. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That was her mango. Where's your mango? Measuring against others. I give more than, therefore I give enough. Preoccupied with rules of giving. Gross or net? What about interest income? What if my mother gave it to me? On a million, preoccupied. It's not to say that none of that matters. It's to say that if you're preoccupied for it and it's the way that you get to keep the mango in your pocket, you need to have a little soul searching. If that's why you have all those questions. Last one. Preoccupation with destination. How will it be used? Who will be using it? What will they do with it? I want you to know that it is an instinct in you that is good to want to know that your money is used wisely. You need to know that, yes, it's true. There have been bad people that have wasted money, that have taken money from, from good God-fearing church people and thrown it away. That's absolutely true, and you should care about that. But let me tell you what, God cares about that far more than you do. Far more than you do. Unscrupulous CEOs get a fine or maybe go to jail. Unscrupulous pastors and leaders, when they go down... They lose it all. They lose life, career, reputation. They are destroyed by those things. I want you to know this church is led by a plurality of leadership. There's no one person who autonomously controls the money. None of you is known to us by name what you give. You're a number. And we don't even know the number. 
And I want you to know that the group of people in the finance team that run this church are the finest I've ever seen, both in terms of their competency and their integrity. But you still shouldn't be preoccupied with destination. Just give the Lord the mango and see what He does. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank You so much for setting me free from my struggles in this world and giving me the peace and security of eternal life through the work of Christ. I thank You, Father, for making me an object of that Gospel work as You restore the whole world, as You renew the whole earth. You've included me in that renewal and I praise You and I thank You for that. And with my brothers and sisters in Christ, we all pray that from that place, that place of sheer thanksgiving and cheerful generosity, our resources, time, talent, and treasure would flow out like a sweet aroma. A ratification of our commitment to You. And a witness to Your power. In Jesus' name, Amen.